the National Archives podcast series, A System of Spies and Informers, Intelligence Gathering in the Period 1780-1830, presented by Chris Barnes. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Um, last June, I gave a talk here on a group called the London Corresponding Society. Uh, this was a group made up of artisans and craftsmen who, following from the lead of the French Revolution, wanted extensions to the franchise here in Britain. Now, you might think that's a reasonable thing to uh, want to achieve, but the leaders of this group were eventually put on trial for treason as the government thought that any change in the constitution without the agreement of parliament and by inference the king was treasonable. In the end all three men on trial were found not guilty but in looking at their prosecution and trials I was intrigued by the methods used by the government to gather information about this group especially in the era before the Metropolitan Police or centralised national government. What we're looking at here is a pamphlet from which I've shamelessly stolen the title for this talk, called On the Moral Tendency of a System of Spies and Informers, written in 1794 by a man called John Thelwall, who was one of the leaders of the corresponding society who was put on trial for treason. Now you might think, what is a printed pamphlet doing in our collection when it's clearly not a government record? Well, it's in record series TS24, as it was the job of the Treasury Solicitor to gather papers that were to be put together for use on state trials. Many papers of the leaders of these societies were collected on their arrest and transferred to the Treasury Solicitor for analysis to be used by the prosecution. You can see, in fact, if you look at the hierarchy in the catalogue description, that this subsection is miscellaneous papers on sedition cases. The pamphlet to me is really interesting because it's the printed text of a speech given by Thelwall. He was quite the orator, often attracting crowds of up to 500 to hear him speak at his lodgings. He talks about many of the things that I'll be talking about today, but it's basically an impassioned defence of free speech. He's defending his right to talk about extensions to parliamentary reform and he also hints at the repression his group have felt at the hands of lawmakers. Thelwell speaks of instances in the past where the meetings of the London Corresponding Society have been disrupted by those in authority. He makes reference to Sir James Saunderson, who was Lord Mayor of the City of London, denying the group rooms. Thelwell relates this to a wider government plan for suppressing the society, or one of the ways and means for exciting terror and apprehension throughout the country. All this talk of terror could be thought to be petty grumbling. However, what makes his speech so interesting is that he knows there are people in the crowd who've been sent to spy on him. And so he's addressing his message directly to those people. James Reeves, who's administrator of the London Bow Street patrols and a group of Bow Street runners, have been sent to the next room to listen to the speech, ready to leap into action the instant they heard anything seditious. So Thelwell gave them plenty. He says, every coffee house in London is filled with party hirelings and venal associates, the pimps and lackeys of courtiers. Even in his own house, he claims to be close to the fangs of law, not only for what you may have uttered, but for what the prejudiced hirelings may think fit to lay upon the slightest suggestion to your charge. And as it's no secret that they're in attendance, he calls to them, come then from your lurking corners, ye tools of perjured treachery, ye spies, ye dark assassins. 
So we know that the meetings of these societies were not safe from prying ears, but we'll be covering more topics in the rest of this talk, especially the role of magistrates throughout the country, the role of the post office, and how legislation was enacted to keep control of law and order. But first, let me introduce you to the other player in this talk, the Home Department. That's what the Home Office was known as when it was first established in 1782 from the State Papers Southern Department. It was moved to a building on Whitehall known as Montague Lodgings on the site of the Treasury Building. The Board of Trade had the ground floor and the Home Office had the first floor. And it had four rooms. There was an office for the Secretary of State, an office for each of the permanent undersecretaries, and the remaining room was occupied by a dozen clerks who were employed copying and entering of correspondence. And that's it for the whole country. A home <laughs> department staffed by about 15 individuals. Now how can they be expected to keep control of law and order throughout the whole of the Great Britain? The first thing to consider when you're thinking about these 15 individuals is the literal size of what they were governing. By 1801, the population of England and Wales was 8.8 .8 million. The population of Greater London was just over 1 million, double the population of Wales and double the population of its nearest rival, Paris. By 1831, just after the formation of the Metropolitan Police, London had grown to a population of 1.6 million. It wasn't just the population that was growing, so were the gaps between social classes. In London, more people were living closer, in closer proximity to each other at a time when the monetary gap between the classes was widening. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and all sharing a finite amount of real estate. Before the Home Department, there'd been quite a lot of emphasis put on the population policing itself. If we look at this map, which shows correspondence coming into the Home Office throughout the country, you can see that the darker colours that indicates a greater concentration of correspondence are closer to London. And this pattern replicates itself going on throughout the entire 19th century, in that the further you get from London, the more likely local government was to sort out problems by itself. If you're writing in from Middlesex, Surrey or Kent, you could generally expect an interaction with government within a few days. So you could write in and ask for advice. If there was a riot in Carlisle, for example, a response from government might take a fortnight to arrive. Local government in the provinces, therefore, has a slightly different tone. The magistrates, knowing the population and its moods, would instead of asking for advice, deal with the situation and then inform the Home Secretary afterwards, usually putting on a little caveat like, I hope that's okay. A consequence of this is that you could argue that the Home Office simply didn't know what was happening in the far corners of Great Britain, in that they weren't getting the information that they needed. Many parishes still used parish constables, unpaid and amateur. Their only redeeming feature was, as I've mentioned, that they often knew every member of a community and their business. This local knowledge was a recurring theme that was used by the Home Office, and I'll refer back to later on in the talk. London was in a slightly different position, having the Bow Street patrols. These were essentially a private crime-fighting force responsible for the magistrates that were paid for by the Treasury. The accounts relating to the upkeep of the public offices, such as this example from um, Bow Street, 
are very interesting in, in that the constables were paid in a piecemeal fashion, re receiving payments for each criminal they apprehended each time they gave evidence at the Old Bailey, for example. This itemisation of payments gives us more of an appreciation of the daily activities of, of the patrols. Moving on to the question of using informers, it's useful to consider that this was pretty much the only way the government had to gather the information they wanted. The Treasury accounts again are useful here as they detail payments made to members of the population for giving information. These examples are from the time of Sir John Fielding in 1758 and they show a payments of two shillings and sixpence given to two different individuals which for information which had led to convictions. Sometimes this information was the sole basis of a conviction and some people even used providing information as the basis to earn a living. The only difficulty with the system of informants is that it was casual and it's not brilliantly recorded. Here it just says information of gaming. It doesn't say who it was paid to. So it's hard to trace through whether they were regular informers or not. And also, it's complicated by the fact that the use of informers wasn't standardised throughout government. It's hard to believe, but sometimes government departments didn't communicate with each other very well, and that often led to duplication of information. To illustrate this point, I've got an example of information about refugees in Jersey and also ships' movements. This is information gathered by a man called Philippe Dauvergne, the Prince de Bouillon, who was military administrator on Jersey. He was gathering intelligence because by this point we were at war with France and feeding the information back to London. However, he sent information to the Foreign Office, the War Office, the Privy Council and the Home Office. The Channel Islands also came under the remit of the Home Office, so the Governor of the Islands was also sending his own information back to the Home Office. So you've got five instances of the same information in four government departments at the same time when they all could have shared. When the Home Office was established as well its role was quite muddled. Most people seem to think it was just made up of what was left. Like it had this responsibility many people thought because it had come from the state paper southern department that it still had it remit that extended beyond the boundaries of the UK and therefore they should be collecting this intelligence. The Home, Office, the Home Secretary was still therefore seen as a semi-military position. When William Grenville, Lord Grenville, was moved to his position as Foreign Secretary by his cousin, Pitt the Younger, Pitt wanted the Marquis Cornwallis, who was a general in the American War of Independence, to take over as Home Secretary. But due to the delay in Cornwallis returning from his post as Governor General of India, the post was given to Henry Dundas. Although, sticking with the military theme, his appointment as Undersecretary was a man called Evan Nepean, who was a purser in the Navy and whose brother was an administrator of the penal colony in New South Wales. In 1794, Pitt created a new position, Secretary at State for War, not to be confused with the Secretary at War, which was a different position. When Dundas left to fill this post, he took Nepean and another up-and-coming parliamentarian, William Huskinson, which opened up two positions at the Home Office. These departures also facilitated a change in direction for the Home Office, 
as the Secretary of State for War now took over that responsibility for foreign intelligence gathering. The people that filled the vacancies at the Home Office would have a dramatic influence on the direction of the department and its activities. William Cavendish Bentinck, the third Duke of Portland, took over as Home Secretary. He was firmly opposed to the French Revolution, which had caused him to split with Fox and join Pitt's government. Of as much importance was his appointment as Undersecretary, Richard Ford, who was uh, a zealous loyalist and was a member of a loyalist association set up to oppose the seditious societies like the London Corresponding Society. He was very much, in, uh, very much involved in gathering the information which led to the treason trials that I've already alluded to. Another important man in this administration was a man called William Wickham, who was a magistrate and later became Undersecretary but I'll refer back to him in just a few moments. Now here at the National Archives, the most important series for domestic correspondence is HO42 for this period. This is a series for all the domestic incoming correspondence to the Home Office dated between 1782 and 1820, which you can browse and download via Discovery, our new catalogue. However, the only, piece, only the pieces for the 1790s are currently keyword searchable. The record series is the main conduit for people from around the country to file reports and submit information that would enable the Home Secretary to build up a picture of what was happening throughout the country. You generally find two types of letter in this series. The first is answering a direct request for information issued by the Home Secretary. The second is volunteering information based on local reports that the Home Secretary might not have been aware of. I tend to find the first type of letter more useful than the second. In 1792, the government issued this, which was the Royal Proclamation on Seditious Writing and Tumults, issued in response to the activities of groups like the London Corresponding Society throughout the country, like similar institutions in Manchester and Sheffield and Norwich, for example. This stated that authorities around the country should inform the Home Office if anything of a seditious nature should appear in their area, and also to investigate the authors and prosecute if any were found. This proclamation triggered a flood of correspondence from all corners of the UK, passing on information not only about seditious activity, but about potential riots relating to food and also concerned about the number of French emigres coming into the country and the effect that that was having on the local population. There are also many instances of people reporting a lack of activity in the area and assorting the loyalty of the townsfolk with gushing praise of the king and the government for their responsible governing, which are all uh, pretty useless and a bit of an irritation. Here's a few examples of the sort of material that was sent in to the Home Office in HO42. This is a printed song called The Rights of Man after Payne's famous book, which was sent in from Great Yarmouth a handbill that was brought in from Norwich at the bottom, it's saying off with King George's head and a hussar. And this example from Hull is fairly typical, as not only is he sending in a copy of the handbill that was stuck up in town, where the, the little hat at the top there says Liberty, but he's also offering a reward of £100 because he's trying, like the proclamation says, to discover who the author was. I should warn you that you do have to balance this good intelligence 
with examples of sheer lunacy and conspiracy theories. There were some who believed that the refugees mentioned earlier were actually a subtle invasion force and that the French army were slowly but surely implanting an army of occupation on British shores and they were going to unveil themselves as an occupying army at any given instant. So uh, you can only imagine what the Home Secretary was thinking as he was being read those types of letters over his breakfast. As I stated earlier, you'll typically see a high proportion of letters coming from the counties closer to London. However, some magistrates were especially zealous in volunteering information to the Home Secretary. You can see that there's a high concentration of letters coming in from Warwickshire, and that's all the work of one particular magistrate, a man called John Brook, who wrote 19 separate letters in the year 1792 about the potential misuse of arms that have been manufactured in the city and possible links with these arms to insurrection in Ireland and with the seditious groups such as the London Corresponding Society. By comparison, some counties, Lincolnshire and Cumbria, for example, there's virtually nothing for the same period. Due to the outbreak of war in 1793, there was a huge amount of correspondence pouring into the Home Office, like I said, regarding the number of French emigres in the country and the impact this was having on local tensions, the amount of food stocks, and also responding to legitimate fears that there may be French spies or agents amongst these refugees. I mentioned before that I wanted to see if I could get an appreciation of how seriously the government took these reports. And the best way to find that out is to see if there were letters, if any of these letters drew a response. Now the incoming letters are in this series HO42, but the outgoing letters are in record series HO43. If you examine the volume for 1792, HO33-4, you find several letters responding to such reports of French landings addressed to magistrates at Eastbourne, Portsmouth and Gosport. This example was sent to Mr Thomas Curry, who is magistrate at Gosport in Hampshire. And it's interesting because each of those three letters to Eastbourne, Portsmouth and Gosport, they ask for further information on the intelligence of French in the area. It says it's desirable at this moment that every degree of intelligence regarding the number and description of peoples arriving from France should be obtained. Similar letters in this volume are also addressed to the Mayor of Liverpool, granting authorisation to call troops from Manchester in the event of any disturbances, which is another example of local decision-making on the ground being and direct action being more important the further you get from London and praising the efforts of the authorities in Sheffield for their handling of riotous behaviour, which is another example of reporting what they've done after the event. HO42 is also where we find evidence of the Home Office's use of spies sent directly to spy on such groups as the London Corresponding Society. Two pieces of legislation helped the government to spy on the Corresponding Society, although the legislation wasn't exactly designed with this function in mind. The first was the Middlesex Justices Act of 1792, which created 21 new magistrates for London. These magistrates were based in seven new offices around the capital, each with its own team of constables and runners. They were responsible for law and order across London. One of their main remits was to keep an eye on potential troublemakers, which included suspected French emigres. 
After all, agreeing somewhat with the conspiracy theorists, it would be pretty easy for somebody to claim that they were a legitimate emigre while also sending reports back to France on fortifications and the amount of troops in London. The second piece of legislation was the Alien Registration Act, 1793, which meant that all foreign nationals had to register with the authorities at their point of entry. With the setting up of the Alien Office, they too had in their remit the go-ahead to begin surveillance on suspected individuals, and thus began the first semi-official secret service, although by proxy. What the legislation also did was make societies such as the corresponding societies legitimate targets. The government supposed that as they were allowed to spy on the French, so why not those in London who seemed to support the French? This letter in HR 4225 is from Nathaniel Conant, one of the newly appointed magistrates. He's indicating that he's already put an informer into one of the divisions of the London Corresponding Society, that it might be better to know what was going forward than to aim at ineffectual supposition. Another of the newly created magistrates was a man called William Wickham, who I referred to earlier. He was a well-educated, well-connected man who'd been brought up and educated in Switzerland, who was brought in to supervise the alien office, as neither Nipine nor Dundas could speak French. He also became very adept at recruiting a large ring of informal and casual spies. The Home Office often chose men of a legal background to be their spies, it was not unusual for them to be sent to investigate suspicious activity around London, such as this example of Sir Samson Wright, who's another of the magistrates, wanting an informer to go and investigate a suspicious hatter who was living on Piccadilly, suggesting that it would be suitable for investigation by Walsh or Grove. We know that John Groves was a solicitor at the Old Bailey and can surmise similar for James Walsh. He must have been a legal man as Walsh was sent out in the country on occasion to conduct investigations on behalf of the Home Secretary, such as on this occasion, he sent to investigate the conduct of the inhabitants of Falmouth amid reports of looting a wrecked Dutch frigate. Thomas Shelton, who we know was an attorney at the Court of the King's Bench, was also sent out to Norwich for the Home Secretary to investigate the author of the seditious handbill that we saw earlier. You'll note that when these men were sent out of London, it was in an official capacity. That's because it was much harder for an outsider to infiltrate seditious groups in another town where most people tended to know each other. William Metcalfe was another example of an off-dues agent who was sent to investigate incidents at Liverpool and Worcester, amongst others, between 1792 and 4. Having proved his usefulness on this business, he was then sent to infiltrate and spy on the London Corresponding Society. Being a local meant that he could blend in more easily. He attended these meetings for about a year, compiling the evidence that was sent to the Treasury Solicitor and used in the trial of the leaders of the society. Interestingly, Metcalfe, Groves and Walsh were all sent individually on more than one occasion to spy on the London Corresponding Society and all three men were called to give evidence at the trial of Thomas Hardy, who was the first of the three leaders to be tried. You would assume that the Home Office, as such a small operation, and that these men who were involved in such a similar role would know each other. But Grove's testimony at Thomas Hardy's trial is very revealing. First of all, 
he's described as gentleman, was present at the late meetings of the Corresponding Society. Nothing about him being a spy. He claims that he was instructed to attend a mass meeting of the London Corresponding Society at Chalk Farm by a person high in office under his majesty, but whom he would not name. There's no doubt that it's William Wickham, but he won't give his name. He also says that he saw James Walsh there, who he knew to be a spy, but he claims that he didn't know him personally. The fact that Wickham instructed three of their repeatedly used agents to go to these meetings begs an interesting question. Why send all three? Did they require a volume of compelling damning evidence? And did they purposefully not introduce these men to each other so that there could be no accusation of collusion? It's even stranger that William Wickham sent a fourth person to this chalk farm meeting, his secretary, Edward Gosling. In his written pre-trial evidence that he sub submitted, Gosling submitted to the Treasury solicitor, he notes that Wickham had asked him directly to go and gather evidence about the dealings of this society. And he notes that the crowd at this meeting, as in Thelwell's speech at the beginning, knew there to be spies in attendance. However, the corresponding society preferred to try and win round their doubters with their arguments, not to resort to violence, so the spies were allowed to stay. An odd example of a spy is a man called George Lynham. He's unusual in the fact that he wasn't appointed by the Home Secretary, but was already involved with the London Corresponding Society and volunteered his services as a spy. Here we have his comprehensive report of the activities of the London Corresponding Society, written up for the benefit of the Treasury Solicitor. A consequence of using these men as spies is that they were single use. The government hadn't come around to the idea of going incognito yet. Therefore, Lynham's identity, once he'd appeared at Hardy's trial, was compromised. He wasn't a legal man and therefore couldn't be sent around the country gathering intelligence like the others could. And it would have been impossible for him to infiltrate another group as he was already out in the open. Therefore, he was discarded. There's a letter from Evan Nepean dated 15th of February, 1795, saying that as a result of his appearance at the trial, Lynham's business had failed and that he was in distress. Nepean asked for £100 to be provided to him on account of his help to the government from the secret service funds. This letter can be found in record series HO387, a little known, little used series of records. HO387 contains accounts and miscellaneous papers relating to Home Office Secret Service expenditure. In addition to revealing snippets of information about the administration of the Home Office, they also illustrate the use of Secret Service money, both for the detection and prevention of treasonable practices. What's interesting about these vouchers, as they're known, they're basically expense claims, is that they do reveal dates, places, and names, and also the amounts of money that these people were claiming. The Home Secretary obtained Secret Service money, as here, pleased to pay the enclosed from SS, William Wickham. Secret Service money was obtained by applying to the Treasury, citing Section 27 of the Civil List Act, which circumvented restrictions on the annual expenditure allowed by the Home Office and also meant that these payments could not be scrutinised by the Treasury. Although mainly active in the UK, this example is London, 
agents were on occasion sent out by the Home Office overseas, which is this man Thornton, who was sent to Hamburg to investigate materials bound for the king's enemies. Moving firmly into the 19th century, the role of the Home Office continued to grow and evolve. Eventually, there was so much correspondence coming into the Home, home Office that they decided to further subcategorize the correspondence. Thus, you see correspondence relating to disturbances having a separate record series, HO40. This starts in 1812 and is initially described by category such as Luddites and then the Campaign for Parliamentary Reform, but goes on to be uh, categorised by county and by year. This isn't fully keyword searchable, although you can browse and download, again from Discovery, if any particular county, Yorkshire, Lancashire, for that year is of interest to you. You'll find in many ways this series is very similar to the correspondence found in HO42. You'll find information being sent in by local worthies, such as magistrates, and also by their regional spies. This is their presses of information reports received by magistrates, agents, prisoners, etc. The type of information being sent in is virtually the same as HO42. Here's an example of a public dinner thrown in honour of the leading Spencians. That's Messrs Watson, Thistlewood, Preston and Hooper, who were the leaders of the Spencian movement, and they were arrested and put on trial for treason following the famous Spa Fields mass meeting in 1817. Speaking of Thistlewood, I just have one further example from HO42, just to illustrate that you still find information being sent in in this record series all the way up to the final year of the series, 1820, which this volume, HO42199, is dated. These small slithers of paper that you can see on the screen were sent in by George Edwards, who was spying on the Cato Street conspirators. Now, these in bits of information about the leaders, you can see Thistlewood's name on the top of the second slip on the left, were used again by the Treasury Solicitor to formulate the prosecution for Thistlewood's ultimately unsuccessful trial. The last thing I had to talk to you about is the role of the post office. In this act of 1711, which founded the post office, there's an interesting clause which states, I will not knowingly open or suffer to be opened any letter which shall come into my hands except by an express warrant in writing under the hand of one of the principal secretaries of state. So big brother, phone hacking, it's nothing new. This material was siphoned off into its own record series, HO33. Although the earliest date in the catalogue is 1787, most of the material dates from the very late 1790s and then on into the 1800s. You can see from this screenshot of the catalogue that the series is fully itemised, so you can keyword search it, although it's not available to download. You have to see it in the reading rooms here at Kew. Again, you have two types of correspondence in this series. The first is correspondence diligently forwarded from provincial postmasters, and then 
on from the General Post Office. As I've alluded to before, local government officials were responsible for policing themselves and they would have known the business of the more notorious people in their areas. This is especially the case for provincial postmasters who quite often would combine this role with that of, say, a publican. This letter, sent by Francis uh, Freeling, who was the Postmaster General, to Viscount Sidmouth, who was the Home Secretary in 1817, encloses a letter sent by Mr Allsop, Postmaster at Nottingham. Mr Allsop is requesting a warrant to intercept the mail of a list of suspected persons, which is included. The letter is annotated, Warrant Prepared. It's interesting that the Post Office Act said that regional postmasters could only open post by order of a warrant. However, the pressures of war and the wording of the Royal Proclamation seen earlier seems to have superseded that act. And a lot of postmasters tend to have gone rogue and forwarded uh, things that they, they thought was of interest to the, uh, to the Home Office. It is comforting to know that there were warrants that were sent out by the Home Secretary and that this was done responsibly from time to time. This letter, again from HO43, the outgoing correspondence, is addressed to the Postmaster General by Henry Dundas. He's informing the Postmaster General that a man named Christopher Byrne had forged a draft for £1,000 and had, by all accounts, quitted the country, but that he has relations in Whitechapel to whom he may write. So they're wanting the post office to intercept his letters to find out if he says where he is so they can go and arrest him. And so, in conclusion, having no central government and no nationwide police force meant that the small bureaucracy had no other option than to use these covert methods. The system was only as good as the men who ran it and their prejudices of the time definitely influenced the tasks that they set their agents. Ultimately, the evidence produced helped to convince Parliament that a real danger existed in the country, even if much of the intelligence submitted to the Home Office had to be dismissed. The regular and trusted intelligence of spies and agents throughout the country, however, meant that the actions taken by the government, if seeming a little disproportionate, were necessary, as not acting on this information would have been a far worse scenario. Thank you for listening to me. This talk was recorded on the 11th of April 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.